You are listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. As you get settled in, uh, we're going to be in Hebrews 12, as uh, Jacob just read for us. passage reminds us that all correction is painful and yet ultimately desirable. All correction is painful but but ultimately desirable. I know we have some students here and uh, perhaps you can draw back in your memory to your time uh, in school Uh, but there's an experience that happens uh, in school that really drives me nuts Um, and it's when uh, you get a paperback uh, that that has like a maybe it's an A maybe maybe it's a, maybe it's a B who knows what the grade is um, but it's not a hundred but there are no corrections right like it's painful to get a paperback with a bunch of red that tells you you're a horrible writer and you can't make coherent sentences and your argument stinks you know like that's one thing and I kind of as painful as it is I kind of appreciate that because I'm like all right well now I know how to work on it but when you get a paperback and it's like a 92 you know and there's no correction. You're like, would you just have a bad day? Like, what, what would lead you to give me that grade without giving me some correction? You know, like, I'd like to know, did I forget, like, a, sentence, a period on my sentence? Like, did I misspell something? Did you read it? You know, like, what, what is happening here? Why won't you tell me why you didn't give me a perfect grade uh, if there's no markings uh, indicating why I got less than a perfect grade? You know, the, the, the dynamic of being corrected uh, if we're really honest, it, it really comes down to whether or not we feel like we know what we're doing. You know, I, I've had some experiences where I've uh, worked on a car with someone or put in a fence or learned a new skill. And when I don't know what I'm doing, I actually long for correction. I don't know if you've had that experience. Uh, you know, I mean, it helps if the person can be nice about it, you know, and not just like mean all the time. But uh, if you're doing something you've never experienced, it's helpful when somebody is like, hey, actually, if you put that on that way, it'll, it'll like ruin it, you know. So don't put it on that way. Put it on this way. And you're like, oh, thank you. That helps me, you know. Um, or if you're, if you're trying to learn something, you're like, you, you're asking them for correction. Like, hey, tell me what to do with this. How do I help me with, you know, this question or this problem? Um, you ever feel like you're in the spotlight? Um, <clears throat> uh, but when, when, you, when you feel like you know what you're doing, that's when correction really becomes difficult, right? Like when, when somebody corrects you, but, but you ultimately feel like you, you know better than them. That's really our rub with God, right? When, when we feel the correction of God's word, uh, where, or even the, the discipline of our trials, when, when we feel like this isn't what we wanted, this, this isn't how the plan should go, and yet God has given us this uh, particular set of circumstances, we feel like we know better than God. It's hard for us to trust Him, and that's honestly the truth in community. When you're around other believers and have a relationship with other believers, I don't know if you've ever had somebody that's spoken truth into your life and the thought comes into your mind, who are you to call me out? Who are you to tell me that I need to address this area? Do you know better than me? Are you any better than me? Like, I've seen your life. You don't have it all together either. Like, we have all these thoughts in our head, and we feel like they don't know what's best. And so when we're corrected, uh, even though it's ultimately desirable, and we feel like we know better, we buck up against correction. And so this raises the question, do you receive discipline 
or do you buck up against it? Do you receive discipline or do you buck up against it? I think our answer to that question, our response to that question is, is what determines our growth in the Christian life. Whether or not we receive correction from God and from others in community is determinative of our growth in the Christian life. It takes us to the heart of discipleship, of, uh, of what it means to grow up in Christ. We've been talking about that from Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12 last week, looking at God's desire for the church to be built up into the maturity of Christ, into godliness, and into holiness. And, and that really is at the core what discipleship is all about, that we have this responsibility to one another. Uh, but also uh, an aspect of our discipleship, the corrective aspect of our discipleship, which we'll dig into more next week, is what we call church discipline. And, and as I, I prepared this sermon, the sermon this week was supposed to be on church discipline. But as I uh, wanted to, to kind of introduce the topic of church discipline, I really wanted to look at the issue of God's discipline of us first, which is foundational to our understanding the role of church discipline in the healthy church. And, and that's what we've been doing in this short series. So uh, you paid for six, but you're going to get seven weeks uh, out of the sermon series. Um, and, and our desire uh, is, to, is to really... Uh, look at what God's plan is for his people, right? The church, uh, you know, is, uh, here's the building, here's the steeple, open it up, right? And here are the people, you know, that, that's, been, that's been some elementary truth to that. Uh, that's, that's the church is a people. And, it's a, and we think about what the church is and what God wants to do through the church. We want to know what God's plan is for his people. And so we've sought to reframe our perspective on the church, it's not a human institution, though it's run by humans and filled with humans, and so uh, it's not perfect. It's full of sinners, and, uh, and, and that comes with its own challenges. But uh, the divine perspective on the church is it belongs to Jesus, and Jesus really loves his church, messed up as we may be. And that's really good news to all of us, and it's really good news for God's plan to build the church he really loves his church. He gave himself for his church, and he says that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And in fact, it's his church through which God plans to accomplish his will and purpose in the world. As I prayed at the beginning of service in, in Habakkuk, it says that the day is coming when God's glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. When you put together that vision of what God plans in the end, and you put together what God says about the church, you realize that the, the glory of God covering the earth as the waters cover the sea will happen as churches are planted and established and grow and reach people all throughout the world. Like that's, that's what we're about. That's why we exist uh, is to make Christ known and to, and to live lives that glorify him and reflect him. And so this is what we are doing as a church. And when we think about how we should be belong to the church, we looked at Acts 2 and we saw the, the characteristic of devotion, devotion to gathering, devotion to God, devotion to one another that defines our life together. And, and then in, in our devotion to one another, we're marked by a ministry that God has given us, uh, a ministry uh, of serving him and serving one another and serving our community. And, and that vision of ministry is that God has given us his grace uh, through the means of the Holy Spirit to get, gift us in specific ways that we might serve one another beyond what we feel like we're capable of doing in our own strength so that the church may be built up and we might speak the truth in love and live out the truth in love. And in the, the context of talking about this, we've looked at important things like 
Uh, why, why we believe in church membership, why we believe in expositional preaching, where we take a passage and the, the point of the passage is the point of our sermon. And uh, we've looked at uh, the importance of uh, the role of leaders, not to do all the work of ministry, but in equipping all the saints and participating themselves in the work of ministry, that we all have a work to do and the importance of the teaching of God's word. And we've seen that how the gospel must be foundational uh, to what we do and, uh, and, and a, a right understanding of the gospel shapes our life together as a church. And and then this week and next week, we're going to talk about the role of discipleship and church discipline in a healthy church, uh, to understand why this is essential, both for growing in holiness and then guarding the purity of the church. And so, uh, as I mentioned, I want us to step back before we dive into the how-tos and the whys of church discipline. Um, and by its, by its own um, mention, it has a negative implication sometimes for people. When you think about church discipline, and we'll, we'll dig into this more next week, you hear words like excommunication, and you're like, ooh. You know, part of the problem with the church is that the church has this authority that it seems to abuse at times. So why would I want the church to have authority to discipline me, right? Um, is kind of our buck up against that. And I, I, I think there's, you know, examples and when that's happened. And yet we want to understand God's view and his perspective on it and his plan for the church so that we can be faithful not to follow the whims of our culture, but we can be faithful to follow the truth of God's word. And behind a church practicing discipleship and discipline is a God who disciplines. And to understand the God who disciplines will help us to better understand and appreciate the call that God gives the church to pursue discipleship and practice church discipline. So that's what Hebrews 12 um, is going to help us do. We're going to see the God who disciplines. Now, because we're diving into a passage here that's kind of in the middle um, uh, of a book, or really at the end of a book, uh, since the 13th chapter is the last one, um, it's helpful to understand what what we're talking about in Hebrews. Uh, The book of Hebrews uh, is written uh, to a group of um, Jewish background Christians who have come to faith in Christ and experienced some pretty intense trials and persecution. The temptation of these believers is to shrink back into the practice of Judaism so that they can avoid persecution and trials. Uh, It's easier if they just sink back into their old way of life so they don't have to mess with the trouble of identifying with Christ and following Christ. Um, and, And so the author of Hebrews is writing to them and beckoning them not to compromise their commitment to Christ, but to to press on. He does that not by telling them, you guys are lazy and you need to do better and you need to work harder. He does it by telling them that Jesus is better. Like all throughout, he, he says, let me take you back to the, uh, to the truth of the Old Testament and show you that all of this is the shadow and Jesus is the substance. Jesus is better. He says how Jesus has fulfilled God's promises to us. He's God's son, the great high priest who knows our weakness and yet was without sin. Jesus is the sacrifice, the perfect once and for all sacrifice. And not only is he the sacrifice, but he's the one who takes the sacrifice into the heavenly temple and and presents it before God for our forgiveness. And the author of Hebrews is saying time and time again, look to Jesus. He's the substance. He's the fulfillment. He's where satisfaction is at. Fix your eyes on him. In fact, as we look in verses 1 through 2, that's the whole point. He, he reminds them of this great cloud of witnesses in verse 1 that's surrounding them. And he says, therefore, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. And here it is, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. 
If you want to run the race that lies before you, you have to put off sin. That's the first part. He says, let us put these things off. But not only are we putting off sin, like we get that in the Christian life. We're called to holiness. And sometimes we can stop short at this. We think that the Christian life is primarily defined by saying no to bad things. And hear me, if anybody de-emphasizes that, uh, you're in danger of missing uh, an important truth, right? But that's not the whole truth. We lay aside the sin that ensnares us and easily entangles us, but the way we run the race is not only by putting off, but by fixing our eyes on Jesus. It's only when you treasure him that our life is fueled for obedience to him. And so what we see in Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, is it says that we're to keep our eyes on Jesus. Or it says just simply looking to Jesus. And then it says that he is the source and the perfecter of our faith. It's not about the amount of faith that you have. It's about the object of your faith that's most important in the Christian life. You may think to yourself, I don't feel like I have much faith. I don't feel like my faith is very strong. Now, no doubt we can, we can grow and exercise the muscle of faith by depending on God. But do you know what makes what's most important when you consider your faith isn't, isn't the amount that you have, but it's the object that you've put it in. And Jesus is the source and the perfecter of our faith. And it says, For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. By saying he endured the cross and then he sat down at the right hand of God means that he rose from the dead. He died in our place and for our sin and he rose from the dead and now he is seated at the right hand of God. Interceding on our behalf, sending his spirit to strengthen and enable us to obey his, his commands, to, to walk in fellowship with him. When we fix our eyes on him, that's the fuel that helps us to lay aside our sins so that we can run the race. And that's what verses 1 through 2 are setting up to show us that following Jesus is a race of endurance that comes with the grace of discipline. And ultimately, that's so that we might finish our race well. Following Jesus is a race of endurance that comes with the grace of discipline that we might finish the race well. God is a God of grace and God is a God of discipline. Those two things aren't contradictory but they work together. And I want us to see three things about God's discipline. And the first is that he disciplines us out of love. Verse 3 begins, he, he, he's kind of helping situate them in light of their, their circumstances, their trials and their, their suffering. He says, Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself that you won't grow weary and give up. So he's writing to them that, that he might encourage them in their trial, in their suffering. Uh, and he, he even says, you haven't suffered to the point of shedding your blood like Christ did for us. Instead, he points them and he exhorts them from the scriptures. And he's ultimately going to say that God disciplines us out of love. And he's going to look to Proverbs 3, actually, to, to kind of ground this in the Old Testament. Now, there's somewhat of an interesting fact that I don't know if you guys all realize or not. But what, what does the author of Hebrews, I'm going to ask it as a question. What does the author of Hebrews have in common with Jim Harbaugh? If you've been watching the news, you know that the author of Hebrews and Jim Harbaugh both are looking to the wisdom of Solomon 
to solve their difficult problems. For Jim Harbaugh, it's whether or not to start J.J. McCarthy or Cade McNamara, right? And I think last night that answer was very clear. But uh, he said, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing a biblical thing. Uh, I'm going to look, I'm going to give one quarterback an opportunity, another quarterback to give an opportunity. Just like Solomon gave an opportunity for the two moms who claimed they had the baby, he said, you know, cut it in half, and, uh, and he showed who the real mom was. I'm not sure if that's exactly what Solomon's getting at, uh, but he's looking, uh, he's looking to the wisdom of Solomon to make his, help make his difficult decision. I, I loved watching last week in particular on, sport, on uh, ESPN on game day like the, the commentators talking about biblical exegesis, these words, he's talking about biblical exegesis and whether or not Harbaugh is rightly understanding, you know, the wisdom of Solomon for fixing his problem. So if you don't, if you don't know the reference, look it up online. You, it's been uh, lots of biblical exegesis on SportsCenter. So it's like a perfect world for me. I've loved, you know, football, biblical exegesis, a beautiful thing. Uh, but, but the author of Hebrews is doing uh, something similar. I won't say the same thing. Um, but he's saying, consider what Proverbs says. And you remember what Proverbs is. Proverbs is written by a number of different authors, but the bulk of it's written by Solomon, and it's to his son, uh, encouraging him uh, to, to follow God's word and to walk in wisdom. It's knowing God's word and then applying it to our lives. And, and here he does that in the same way. Look at what it says, Proverbs 3. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. His overarching point here is that God disciplines his children out of love. Now, Let's step back for a moment and let's talk about discipline, sin, and trials. Because these are important topics here. Uh, All sin comes with consequences. You may feel them immediately or you may feel them later. Some sins, uh, we we, we don't always see the consequences immediately. And that's one of the, the reasons that sin is deceptive. Because you can sin and not feel the consequences always immediately or experience the consequences immediately. But as we think about trials... Not all trials are because of our sin. Sometimes they may be. Your sin can, uh, you, you know, you do things that, uh, <clears throat> as, as some I've heard uh, one, uh, one leader say, you do stupid stuff, you know, you're going you're gonna to go through some, have to go through some tough times. Um, when we sin, uh, we, uh, we put ourselves in position to experience uh, consequences. And, and God has hardwired some consequences into the nature of sins themselves, and other times they come in other means. But not, not all trials are because of sin. But God is always at work, both in the consequences of our sin, as well as in the trials and suffering that we experience to accomplish His purpose in our life. It's important for us to understand that. When God, when God corrects us because of our sin, or when God takes us through trials, God is always working to accomplish His purpose in us. He's always working to refine us and reprove us. Um, we see that we have discipline because of sin, and we have discipline through trials. We, when we sin, we have the natural consequences sometimes of even losing or wounding a relationship, maybe losing a job or costing us money or time or, or even our health at times. Always it's separating us from God and separating us from others and, and putting us in a position where when we don't respond to our sin well, the consequences of not responding to our sin well, confessing it, seeking God's forgiveness, living in God's forgiveness, is that we live with resentment, we live with shame, we live with guilt, rather than walking in the freedom of forgiveness. 
And so we, we see discipline because of sin that we're called upon uh, to respond to rightly. And in fact, Peter talks about this in 1 Peter. If you look in chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, kind of bringing together uh, both suffering for our faith and suffering because of sin, he says, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual are happening. Trials shouldn't surprise us. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ. He's talking here specifically about trials for the sake of following Christ, so that you may rejoice with great joy when His glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed ridiculed for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. You see, his, his point is you can suffer as a sinner, but if you suffer as a follower of Christ because of identifying with Christ, then let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. We see that discipline we experience when we sin should ultimately humble us and draw us to repentance. That's why God disciplines us when we sin, is to humble us and bring us to repentance, to lead us to the grace and mercy of Christ. This is why when I said earlier that all correction is painful but ultimately desirable, when God disciplines us because of sin, it's never fun. But no one wants to be disciplined. But if done rightly and we respond to that discipline rightly, it should lead us to restoration and to healing. You know, Psalm 51 is a passage where uh, we kind of are taken into David's confession after he sins greatly uh, against Uriah and Bathsheba. And and it's basically David pouring out his heart before God. And the outcome of it, he's, he's asking God to restore him, to purify him, restore the joy and gladness. Turn your face away from my sins. In verse 10, it says, God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then get this, having received the restoration of God's forgiveness, then you can use me. I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. We see that God desires to discipline us so that we are led to restoration. He disciplines us because of our sin so that we might be restored from our sin and walk in the full fellowship of God. That's good news when we understand that God disciplines us because of sin. But we also have to understand, and this is the context of Hebrews 12, that he disciplines us through trials. And I think this is a large part of what Hebrews 12 is primarily referring to because they've suffered and struggled because of their faith. These believers have walked through trials and sufferings because they've identified with Christ. And their temptation is to, to, to retreat from Christ so that they avoid the difficulty of suffering and following Christ. Sometimes when we serve Christ... We can experience trials just from our commitment to Christ. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's time. Maybe our commitment to Christ can produce challenges or trials in our relationship. It it can put us in some difficult positions, sometimes at work. Following Christ comes with consequences. Sometimes when we identify with Christ, it, it may not lead to overt physical harm to you, but it may result in some physical relational strain. Uh, There may be some trials that come about in your relationship because of following Christ. But beyond even following Christ, we we live in a broken world and we are beset with all kinds of trials along life's journey. Unexpected things that happen to us physically, uh, in in our health, um, emotionally, financially, relationally, all kinds of things can, can happen. 
We, we get uh, hit with a, you know, an unexpected right hook that we didn't expect to lose our job. We didn't expect our kids to get sick. We, we didn't expect to, to, to have this relationship be rocky or for our finances uh, to be this tight, to be in a place where sometimes it's hard to go to sleep and we're feeling overwhelmed and worried and stressed about the stuff that's before us. But those trials can come our way. But it's important for us to remember that not all trials are because of sin. And in fact, I don't think that I can put myself in a position to ever know when a trial is because of sin or not. I think that we all should evaluate our hearts when we go through trials to see if God's showing us something in us that isn't right, that we need to confess to Him. But more than anything, whenever we face a trial, what God's calling us to is to trust Him in our trial and trust that He's accomplishing His desire in us through it. Now that's hard. You see, I, I think as I think about discipline... It's easy to discipline when um, I know, for example, when I think about my children, uh, it's somewhat easy for me to discipline them when I know that they have done something wrong and I want them to learn what's right. Sometimes there's, a, there's, a, there's another type of discipline when you're trying to form something in, in yourself or in someone else. You're trying to cultivate character. You're trying to, to cultivate something in them that isn't there now, but it's for their good. They don't see it. They don't understand that it's for their good to develop responsibility and to take ownership and to have resilience or these kind of things, speaking from a parenting perspective. But it's my job to, to kind of steer them to that. And sometimes it means giving them some experiences within some parameters to go through some trial to cultivate something in them. And, and, and they don't see that. It's hard for them to trust me because as a human father, I'm inconsistent in my correction and in my discipline. And yet, it's even hard for us to trust God when He's doing that because though we know He's good, sometimes when we look at our circumstances, our circumstances don't tell us that He's good. But He intends to use trials to accomplish His purpose in us. And I think the, the author here is giving us two encouragements to, to help us in receiving God's discipline, knowing that it's from His love. He says, My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly. So we're said not to take discipline lightly. You know, sometimes we do this when we go through a difficult uh, experience in our life. Sometimes we try to save face. We don't want other people to know that we're experiencing something hard. Or sometimes we just don't want to think about it because if we do, we'll fall apart. So we'd just rather not deal with it. So we ignore it. Um, but all along the way, in the midst of that, when we, when we do that, when we minimize uh, the trial or the discipline that we're going through, we, we put ourselves in a position to miss something that God may be trying to do in us. The reality is that when we go through trials, when we experience these difficulties, God is always trying to accomplish something in us. Maybe it's refining us and pointing out some area of sin. Maybe it's renewing our faith, leading us to a deeper trust in God's providential care. Maybe it's producing in us a greater humility and dependence on God, helping us to realize our joy isn't found in our stuff. When your stuff gets taken from you and you realize my joy isn't found in this, my joy is actually found in God. He's always working in the midst of our trials, so we should never take it lightly because we don't want to appear to be doing difficult uh, or going through something difficult. We, we do that so much, and instead, instead of being concerned what God wants to do in us, we're concerned what other people might think about us because of our trials. And here, God's Word is telling us, don't take, your, don't take discipline. Don't take the, the discipline that comes through trials lightly. But also, don't let discipline make you lose heart. 
This is what I said earlier. When, when we realize that God doesn't always discipline us because of our sin, but he's, he's often we go through trials because we live in a fallen world, and sometimes God may send those trials. Sometimes maybe other people's sin or other people's circumstances lead us to go through trials. But the backdrop of all of it is that God is at work in the midst of it. This is one of the reasons that it's so, so hard, because when we go through something and we don't fully understand what God's doing, we're tempted to lose heart. And that's what he said in verse 2 when he said, or verse 3, when he called us to consider Christ, he says, so you won't grow weary and give up. When, I don't know if you've had that experience. I, I look at working out like a trial, you know, um, when, you, when you go work out. It's like suffering that you're voluntarily calling upon yourself, you know. Um, and, and sometimes I envision when I'm working out, like and when I run, there's this moment where I'm like, I just want to give up. But in my head, I'm like, no, I'm just going to make it around the corner before I give up. I just push myself a little further because I don't want to give up and miss out on the good that I'm doing through this exercise. Um, that's on my good days. The other days I just stop, you know. Um, but the whole point is you don't want to stop short of what God is doing. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. He's saying, one commentator said, the Christian who goes through severe trouble must remember that the God who tests us is the Lord who helps us. You see, because as we go through trial, the reason we don't lose heart is because God is working in us to accomplish his purpose and he will help us through. He will certainly not test us beyond our strength. However, serious our adversities, his grace will be sufficient. His grace will be sufficient. The truth of God's discipline is that God's loving discipline demonstrates that we are his beloved children. God's loving discipline demonstrates that we are his beloved children. That's what he says here. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. He punishes every son he receives. He corrects and reproves every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we, if we, we had human fathers discipline us and we respected them, shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? I mentioned earlier that as a father, in my own discipline, I'm, I can be inconsistent. As equally as I am called upon to discipline my children, I also uh, follow that up a lot with asking for forgiveness for my inconsistency um, and my own sinfulness. When I over-respond, when I respond out of my own sin in, in response to perhaps their sin or, uh, or the correction that's needed. But God's not that way. You think about that? He's never inconsistent. I bet if all of us had time to share, we could all share some inconsistencies of our humanly fathers and mothers. Show grace to them because they are very well aware of them. But know that your Heavenly Father is never inconsistent, is never spiteful, is never revengeful, never corrects us because He's tired of us, never corrects us in His sin. He always disciplines us because of love. God's loving discipline demonstrates that we're his beloved children. So he disciplines us out of love, but he also disciplines us for a purpose, and that purpose is holiness. <clears throat> Verse 9 tells us that we, uh, we should submit to the discipline of the Father, the Father of Spirit, speaking of uh, the work of the Spirit in our lives, and live for, for this reason. Verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time, speaking of human fathers, based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. 
No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. He disciplines us to accomplish something in us for our benefit, it says in verse 10, and then he spells that out so that we might share his holiness. And he goes even further in verse 11, so that this discipline might produce, it would yield, the the sowing and receiving of discipline would produce a crop of fruitful, uh, peaceful fruit of righteousness. And he goes on to say that we pursue peace with everyone and holiness without which we will see the Lord. This holiness that is marked by um, uh, intimacy, that leads to intimacy with God. He disciplines us for holiness. Holiness is best explained as Christ-likeness. The character of Christ being defined in our lives. Uh, and his, the, the character of Christ being defined in us and the lifestyle of Christ being produced in us, obedience to God's commands, love for God, love for others. This is what holiness is about. Not, not, it's easy for us sometimes based on our background to think of holiness based on certain parameters that we're supposed to keep and follow here, there, and everywhere. But, and, and there may be some tangible truth of how it gets worked out in our life, but fundamentally, holiness is driven by Christ-likeness. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6-7 through seven defines it this way, As you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, being rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, overflowing with gratitude. So you received Christ, live in Christ. That's the Christian life. That's holiness. Christ in me is, is what we're going after. And when we think of discipline... Uh, we, we think of correction, as I said earlier, that's a foundational aspect. But here is why we, can, why we can understand sometimes the trials that we don't understand. Sometimes even the trials that, um, that, that don't seem to have any tangible reason that God has sent them our way. We can trust that God is sovereign and God is accomplishing His purpose. And His purpose is always to make us more like Christ. And this is what holiness is all about. And, and here's, here's why I think holiness is, is important, and here's a helpful way to think about holiness. As I mentioned earlier, it's easy to think holiness is defined just by do's and don'ts, right? And there are do's and don'ts that, that should find the, the, define the Christian life. We, we just did a series on the Ten Commandments. God isn't afraid to say don't, and we should receive it. But it's not just about do's and don'ts. Here's why. Because holiness is the pathway to intimacy with God. Holiness is the pathway to intimacy with God. Verse 14 shows us this. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. To see the Lord is to enjoy His presence. It's what Moses saw when he was on the mountain. And he said, God, I just want to see your glory. And God allowed His presence to pass by. It's what Jesus revealed when He came to earth. No one has seen the glory of the Father, but Jesus who revealed it. The glory of God, the, the holiness of God is seen in Christ and to, uh, to walk with Christ, to be defined by Christ and His character to shape our life is actually to enjoy the greatest intimacy with God. And, and sometimes we think about intimacy with God just purely from an emotional level when you feel close to God. And I think it's, it's important to cultivate a, a healthy emotional life that we feel close to God. But understand that first and foremost, the sense of intimacy with God is defined by us walking in line with with His desires for us. Walking in obedience to Him. Walking in worship. Walking in love. And that's what what the author of Hebrews is saying. That the, the, the trials that we face, as difficult as they may be, God is working in all of it. Not just merely to 
give us a list of do's and don'ts so that we do the right thing. But he's working so that he might draw us close to him. I don't know if you've gone through suffering and trials and, and have walked with someone through them. But often it's in the trials and the suffering that we draw close to others because others are there for us and have walked with us. That's what God says. When you walk through the trial, when you walk through the, the challenge, when you walk through the suffering, I'm there with you. It's the, it's the moment when, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the pit and they say there's a fourth in the fire. There's another one with them in the trial. God is with us, accomplishing His purpose. And when we see His purpose of holiness, it's a reminder that it's an invitation to intimacy with God. Sometimes people um, use this phrase. Uh, they say, why don't you just live a little? When, when maybe it's kind of calling us to be loosen up a little bit. You know, maybe loosen up a moral standard or uh, give in to a particular temptation. And I think that phrase is interesting because verse 10 says that we ought to receive the discipline of the Father. If you look at it, verse 10, so that we can share in His holiness, or, or verse 9, excuse me, submit to the discipline of the Father and live. That real life is found by submitting to what God is doing in our life. Whether it be through trial or whether it be through his correction of our sin, real life is found through submitting to him. God says live. Uh, to, to truly live isn't to give in to our own way and to our own desires. It's to submit ourselves to God. That's where real life is found. That might be one of the most countercultural messages you'll hear. And it's found throughout the scriptures that real life, real joy isn't found in, in living out your own desires, but in submitting to God's desires for you. We can receive his discipline as love and we can understand his discipline for the purpose of holiness. And it says that this comes, verse 11 makes this point clear, that it comes to those who are trained by it. It says uh, the fruit of righteousness comes to those who have been trained by it. Verse 10 says, or verse 9 says that we ought to submit to the discipline of the Father. It's this whole idea that the, the way we receive um, God's uh, discipline and, and His work in us through trials and even in response to our sin is to submit to Him. When we submit, He works in us. When we yield, when we stop fighting, He works in us. It's as if you were laying on the table for an operation and if all you were doing was fighting, if all you were doing was fighting back, the doctor couldn't operate. But if you submit, if you yield... The good doctor can do his good work to accomplish his purpose in our life. We have to yield to him. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 7-10, Rather, train yourself in godliness, for the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life of the come. And I love that he says, This saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance. He only says that with a few statements of 1 Timothy, mostly about the truth of the gospel and God's desire to work through the gospel. Here he's talking about holiness, and he says, For this reason... We labor and strive. We labor and strive for this reason, because we have set our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Train yourself for godliness. Submit yourself to God in the midst of your trials, knowing that it's His loving discipline that produces likeness to Christ so that we might enjoy intimacy and fellowship with Him. Now, it's been said that you're either... Uh, about to go into a trial in the midst of the fire of the trial or you're coming out of a trial. So odds are you're all, all of us are somewhere 
on that spectrum. My question for you is, do you really believe this part? Do you really believe God's at work right now in the midst of what you're experiencing, good, bad, hard, and different, to accomplish his purpose in your life? Because I can assure you from what Hebrews 12 says, God intends to use our trials in order to make us more like him. And I really think it's understanding God's desire to make us holy that actually helps us to understand why discipleship, the, the formative aspect of discipleship, we'll talk about formative and corrective discipline next week. Really, discipleship is just formative discipline. It's the, the disciplines through the means of grace and community to help us grow in likeness to Christ. It's when people care about you and ask you how your walk's doing. When they pray for you and they say, what's God teaching you in your word? When you get together and you study the Bible together, you work through a book together and you seek each other's spiritual good, that's, that's formative discipline in the church. And when we understand God really cares about our holiness, that's why we ought to pursue discipleship. But it's also why we ought to practice church discipline whenever there's unrepentant sin that persists. Because God really cares. We either believe God cares about sin or we believe he doesn't care about sin. And we can say it, but functionally, do we pursue discipleship and practice discipline? That's, that's this aspect of God uh, di- disciplining us for the sake of producing holiness in us is foundational next week for us to understand discipleship and discipline. But finally, I want us to see that God disciplines to restore. Verses 12 through 13 make this point clear. It kind of draws a conclusion, if you will, from what's been said about God's loving discipline for the sake of holiness. He says, This gracious work is meant to bring about restoration. Strengthen your tired hands and your weakened knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but healed instead. There's two images here of tired hands and weak knees and of making straight your paths for your feet. The aspect of tired hands and weakened knees is this picture of exhaustion. When you run, so I hear, you get tired, right? You get, uh, I don't know if your hands get tired when you run, but your knees get tired when you run, right? Um, we, we, we experience exhaustion as we, remember what Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says, following Jesus is this race of endurance. Not a sprint, but a race of endurance. And when you run for a long time, especially, you get weary and you get tired. And in this, this running the race of endurance that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, we'll be tempted, and not only tempted, but experience growing weary. And what is it that strengthens our weariness? You notice it's not just a suggestion or a statement or even a promise. It's actually a command that we are to strengthen our tired hands and our weak knees. I think the way we strengthen our tired hands and our weak knees is similar to what it says in verse 2, that we fix our eyes on Jesus, particularly we set our hope in Jesus. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. We know what he endured and that he sat down at the right hand and and that we have the, the promise of his presence and his strength, that he will strengthen us as we submit ourselves to him. God demands us to be holy. That's clear throughout this passage. He demands us to be holy. But time and time again, we see throughout the scriptures, he also gives us what we need to become holy. So the God who tests us is the Lord who helps us. We see that truth once again here, that we strengthen our tired hands and our weak knees. We receive his discipline. We trust his work in our trials. We believe that what he says about our sin is right, and we respond to it in repentance. And you know, when you, when you ask God for forgiveness, 
as a Christian? Do you know that you can receive the promise that when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse us and to forgive us of our sin? I've said this before, but one of the, the, the aspects in the Christian life that's most underappreciated is resting in the assurance of our forgiveness. When we confess our sin, we really are forgiven. You don't then have to go around thinking, Did I, was I really forgiven? Did I say it enough? Did I, do I need to do more? He doesn't give us penance to do after we confess our sin. He gives us forgiveness and then he calls us to walk in obedience in the strength that he provides. And when we walk through trials, we know that we can, when we're struggling, when we feel weary, when we feel tired, what we need isn't to escape from God, but we need more of God. That's the answer. More of God. Less of me, more of Him. And then straight, make straight uh, paths for your feet. The idea of making straight paths for your feet is this, it's an active pursuit. Rather than just kind of following the winding road and trail wherever it goes, we are to remove the debris and the boulders from our way to, to make straight our path, leaning into what God is doing through our trials and through our discipline. It, it's saying, God, today, Father, I trust you. I don't see your hand, but I, but I trust your heart. I don't understand what you're doing, God, but I believe you love me. I'm I'm resting in the fact that you love me and you're going to carry me through. I don't feel like spending time with you, Lord, but I'm not going to allow my feelings to define my relationship with you. I don't feel like I have enough time to be with your people, God, but I'm not going to allow my schedule to, to keep me from walking with you and your people and being a part of what you desire for me. I don't feel like I want to take the medicine. You ever been there? Yeah, you ever had the medicine you don't want to take? Maybe it's one of those horse pills or one of those medicines that they tried to make taste good, but you wish they would have just kind of put it away. I see my uh, children raising their hand up there. Um, I don't know if you go back into your childhood and you have to swallow a pill for the first time, and it's like you can't swallow the pill. You know you need to swallow the pill. You know, and somebody can tell you if you swallow the pill, you'll feel good. But you're like, I don't want to swallow the pill. I don't want the medicine. And God says, if you receive the medicine of my discipline. I'll bring about healing and restoration. God doesn't desire, it says ultimately, for us to feel disjointed spiritually. That the lame would be dislocated, but instead his discipline is so that we might be healed. That we might be made whole. As I said earlier, what we need when we're facing difficult circumstances and trials isn't more of our best ideas, but it's more of Jesus. It's him having more of his way in our life. Anxious toil isn't going to restore us in the midst of our trial. Just working ourselves up, trying to find a way out. Sometimes when we face trials, we put it to the side and we just push ahead in our pursuit of success, whatever it looks like. Thinking that if we have more success or more stuff, then then the, the stuff that bothers us won't bother us anymore. Running from it, pursuing our own passions, headlong passive indifference, to our responsibility to God and to others isn't going to produce what God desires of, of restoration in us. The way is receiving His gracious and loving discipline. It feels painful, but it produces the fruit of righteousness. It produces holiness without which we won't see God. And it's good news that God is the doctor. We are sin sick and easily grow weary in our trials. But He's the remedy. He's the medicine. And we receive that medicine by submitting to his loving discipline. Hebrews 12 cautions us from believing a gospel message that says, Jesus is my Savior, but I can live however I want to live. 
We might call that easy believism. A sense of, yes, I love this good news that Jesus is my Savior. But I don't want it to impinge upon my, my own thing that I got going over here. Or you can have certain parts in my life, God, but not these parts. I get to call the shots here. See, the, the message of Hebrews 12 tells us that we're saved by grace through faith. Don't get it backwards. Just because God wants us to be holy, we have no hope of that becoming true of us in our own strength and according to our own ability. We receive His grace. It's the good news of His grace that produces in us a response to live holy lives. Not the hope that if we live holy lives, He will show us grace. We run the race set before us looking to Jesus who accomplished our salvation, not who promises to bring us salvation if we look to Him. And and I, I know some of you are like, Michael, I get that. I'm just telling you, don't get over it. Don't get over it that grace is what motivates our obedience to God. Grace is what helps us to pursue holiness. And, and the, the message of the gospel isn't a message of believe and then let, let live however you want to live, but it's believe and then go on the most unforgettable, amazing journey of your life in which God intends to accomplish his plan and purpose in you to make you more like him, giving you a joy that's beyond anything that you could find in the stuff of this world. It's an invitation to say, come and experience what I made you for, what I died on the cross for you to receive and to experience. That's what he's saying. Holiness isn't a killjoy, but it's actually maximum joy. I don't think I got that from John Piper, but I think he said something like it. And it's true because it's here in God's word. Real joy, real life is found in submitting to Jesus. So I ask you, are you, are you taking your trials lightly? Maybe not fully leaning into what God wants to do. Maybe you say, I don't feel like I'm in a trial, but maybe this is a funky season of life. You're not quite sure what God's doing. Maybe God's up to something. Lean in. If you're like me, it can be easy to get weary when stuff doesn't go well. Tired hands, weak knees, weak ankles, back aches, right? <laughs> the whole thing. It's easy to feel weak. Are you growing weary? Pay attention. Listen. In those moments when you're growing weary, the answer is coming to God to receive what he has for us. Leaning into trusting him, asking him what he wants to accomplish in us, believing that he's working to make us more like him. And then as we hear this call and God's intention to pursue holiness, are we pursuing holiness like that? Where in our lives do we need to pursue holiness to make straight the paths for our feet? And are we putting ourselves, like we talked about in our equip class this morning, are we putting ourselves in a position to, to, to grow in holiness, practicing whether it be time in God's word or time in prayer with God or fellowship with other believers, putting ourselves in a position so that God might work in us, receiving what he has for us through his word, through prayer, and through community in the body of Christ. God disciplines us because he loves us. He disciplines us to produce in us holiness. And he disciplines us ultimately so that we might be restored. He doesn't want us to be disjointed, but he wants us to be healed and whole in him. What good news that God isn't inconsistent and capricious in his discipline, but loving and accomplishing his purpose. Receive that as good news today. 
press into the trial, press into the areas that God perhaps is producing conviction so that you might receive the, the peaceable fruit of righteousness, the fruit of holiness by which we live and experience intimacy with God. Let's pray.